If you have a Bible with you, open it up with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and I want to begin reading in verse 13. James chapter 4 and verse 13. I'll read through verse 17. James, the brother of our Lord, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Verse 17 will be our focus for today. So... Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would send Your Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures for us, help us to understand. Lord, I pray as, as, we've, as we've prayed in the past several weeks that You would convict us of sin, that You would show us our, our grave need for Christ and His great perfections. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. You may have a seat. Hamartiology is the study of sin. And this comes from the Greek word that's used in the Scriptures for sin, which is hamartia. And it is this study, hamartiology, that we've taken up for a few weeks in order to continue providing for ourselves the intellectual foundation necessary for avoiding things in the world and things in ourselves that would tempt us to sin. Remember, we're we're studying through Matthew's Gospel, and in Matthew 18, Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. And if we don't understand what sin is, then we won't know what to avoid, what what things to watch out for. And so that's been our, our study. That's our intention. And we've seen in the past several weeks that all of the biblical concepts of sin and all of the words like sin, iniquity, transgression, trespasses, all of those terms by definition assume an objective moral standard given to us by our Creator. In other words, sin is an offense against God and His character, His holiness and His righteousness. That's what sin is. And so... We began last week to unpack this idea of universal sins, which I've said are actions which are always sinful for all people at any time. 
There are no instances where these types of sins would ever be appropriate, that God would ever deem them righteous, like murder, like stealing, like lying. We, the, we, we saw that this first kind of universal sins is ultimately a breaking of the law of God. We looked at 1 John 3, 4, and we saw that sin is actually defined as lawlessness. And that doesn't mean that we act as though we are without a law, but that we act as though God has not given a law, that we, we reject and we spurn His law. And, and that is, by definition, the, 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 the problem with all sin. Ultimately, all sin is a breaking of God's law. But to specifically transgress God's moral law given in the Ten Commandments is always sinful for anyone at any time. It was wrong for Cain to murder his brother. Although God had not written His law on tablets of stone, it was wrong. It was sinful. Today we're taking up the second passage of Scripture that deals with what I'm calling universal sins. Now there will obviously be some overlap because all sin is a transgression of the law of God. But in our passage today, we're focusing on what have often been called sins of omission. That is, sins where you omit action rather than commit action. Sins of omission. So what I want to do is, of course, unpack the context of what we've read here in James 4.17. Then I'll give a, a brief exposition of this verse the words and phrases, and then we'll unpack the general doctrine or application under three headings. So the majority of the, the sermon today will be the, the applications or the implications rather than the exposition. So first, let's set the context of what we read in James chapter 4. Some of you will remember early in the days of our church, we did a series through the book of James. And we called that series, Here and do. And the reason we called that series here and do is because the theme throughout James' epistle is practical theology. In other words, living out the Christian faith, putting it into practice. We see this in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, where James writes, "...but be doers of the word." And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, James is saying you've got to do what you read. You can't just hear, you've got to do it. James chapter 2, again, verses 14 through 17, we come to the, the topic of faith. And James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him or them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The summary then is that all of the knowledge in the world, all of the spiritual knowledge, even of good, godly, biblical things, 
is useless if it does not consistently produce godly living. We see this not only in James' epistle, but also throughout the New Testament. Throughout the whole Bible, actually. It's, it's littered with this concept. We, we know that all of the things recorded in the Old Testament were written down for our instruction. Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 tells us, in other words, that we would be instructed on how to live. And we see this explicitly spelled out in the New Testament in books or letters where it seems like doctrine is the primary focus. We come to the Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and the first three chapters are just littered with all of this salvific doctrine, Trinitarian salvation, and Christ being the head of the church, and Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body. And then beginning in verse four or chapter 4, verse 1, after all of that doctrine, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Act like a Christian. Romans chapter 12. After all of that great doctrine, the, the, the most systematic and most detailed exposition of the gospel we have in Scripture for 11 chapters, and then Paul in chapter 12 and verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, now that you know all of that, live like it. The Christian message is not a message that says, do so that you may be. But rather, the Christian message is, you are, if you're a believer, you are, therefore, live. Spirit-filled belief always leads to the Spirit-filled life, Spirit-filled Living. So that's the context of James' letter. That's, that's the whole book of James. It's just practical living. Then we come to this specific section, verses 13 through 16. James is dealing with this issue where men would go about their daily business as if God had no part in it. They would just carry out their lives and not even acknowledge God. And then in verse 17 we've read, he restates the general theme of the epistle with regard to this issue. In other words, Christians should most certainly know better than to go about your daily business as if God had no part in it. That's, that's completely unchristian. Therefore, this is James speaking, like I've been saying, to know what to do, which you all do, and to fail to do it is sin. That's what James is saying in this verse. So that's the context here. Now let's just dig into this verse word by word and, and get a, a better grasp on what's being said. Verse 17. First we have the language of universality. James writes, So whoever knows, or literally the one knowing, anyone who knows, anyone who fits the description knows. Whoever knows. And this word knows must be distinguished from other words used in the New Testament because there are many words that we translate as know and they have different meanings. The word know here means to understand fully, to have a complete knowledge or to know how to do something. This is in contrast to 
a word like gnosko, which it means an intimate, familiar, personal knowledge. When we say those whom God foreknew, He also predestined pro-gnosko. That means not that He knew who they were, but He knew them intimately beforehand. That's not the word being used here. This is a different word. This type of knowing or this knowledge requires a full grasp of the thing known. This is not a growing understanding and it's not an intimate familiarity. It's just knowledge. This is like a doctor who knows his field. He understands it. He's well practiced. He gets it. We might say he's competent in his field. This knowing carries that idea, competence. Some of the commentators in translating would even write this as, so whoever knows how to do the right thing. Know-how. Literally, the one knowing. The one knowing how. James continues, so whoever knows the right thing to do. The right thing, or the the good thing. The King James says, so whoever knoweth to do good. It's the good thing. This word means intrinsically, inerrantly good in itself, morally excellent, the right thing. There are other words that would be used for good, like food. Eat this, it's good for you. It's good because of the benefit. Here, put these clothes on, they'll keep you warm. They're good for their benefit. That's not this word. This word means it's just good, period, morally excellent, intrinsically good, the right thing. Whoever knows the right thing to do, James says, and fails to do it, or or who does not do it. The one being described here, the one who has a clear understanding of the obvious good that should be done, does not do that good thing. The morally excellent option was available and known, and he chose not to do it. James says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That person who clearly understood the moral good that they should do, and yet they did not do it. Any person, at any time, in any place, who fits that description, for him it is sin. So again, James is saying, anytime, anyone... Anywhere knows the morally upright, godly action to be taken in any given situation and yet does not do that good thing, that person is sinning in their non-action. Again, if we, we come back into the passage, James has just addressed this attitude that seems almost atheistic. He's addressing those who live their lives and go about their daily work as if there was no God, as if God did not exist, as if God had no bearing on their lives. And James is saying this is obviously not the attitude of a Christian. And so here the lesson is almost redundant. It should go without saying. He's saying in essence, you know you shouldn't live like this, and for anybody who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. When you act contrary to what you know to be right, you're sinning. So hopefully you get the idea James is trying to convey under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now again, we're going to unpack the implications and applications of this under three 
headings. And hopefully, again, the goal is for us to develop an understanding of the weight or the gravity of sin. How grievous sin is, how permeating sin is in all of our lives. So the three headings, if you have a sermon guide there, you can see them. First, the liability of competence. Second, the sin of indolence. And third, the objection of ignorance. Liability of competence, the sin of indolence, and the objection of ignorance. So first, the liability of competence. If you are liable for something, you are responsible for it by law. You are legally answerable for that thing. So if you are behind the wheel of an automobile, you are liable for whatever happens behind the wheel. If you have children in your home, you're liable for them, for the safety and the care of your children. You are the one who will ultimately give an answer for how you use that thing, that car, those children. You're liable. And remember the word no carries this idea of competence with reference to specific good actions. The one who knows the right thing to do is presupposed to have the ability to carry it out. So my point is this. There is a weighty responsibility that comes with understanding the right or the good that you should do as well as having the ability to do it. A weighty responsibility. Once you've been given understanding, you're now responsible for that knowledge. Once you have been given the illumination of the Holy Spirit into that which is good or that which is right, there, at that point in the court of God, you are now legally answerable to God for whether or not you do that good or right thing. Now as I just considered that truth, I, I wanted to put my notes aside and write out another sermon entitled, The Dangers of Expository Preaching, or the, the Hazards of Being a Part of a Bible Teaching Church. I mean, I wonder if you understand the great liability that comes with sitting week after week under the Word of God. As we sit here, week in and week out, and we dive headlong into the Scriptures, very often, verse by verse, we pay close attention to words and phrases and context, and we... I believe, truly seek to determine what the Holy Spirit of God sought to convey through His inspired authors. And then we think really hard and try to understand the implications and the applications and how we live that out. And then we, we pray and we hope that the Holy Spirit will come and, and give illumination and help us to understand and apply it to our hearts. In all of that, we're not just receiving benefits with no strings attached. We're not just here to be entertained. We're not just here to have our intellectual senses tingled, so we leave feeling smarter than we were when we arrived. We are receiving a large deposit that comes with great responsibility. We're being given what the Scriptures call a great stewardship. We're being given something more valuable than all of the riches of the world, and we are expected to be good stewards of it. Why is it that this knowledge comes with such great responsibility? Why are we going to be held liable for the competence that comes through God's Word? 
It's because we are expected to act on what we receive. 1 Corinthians 8 1 says, Knowledge puffs up. Now, that doesn't mean all knowledge is bad. That means knowledge just for the sake of knowledge, just, just learning just for the sake of learning. Knowledge by itself, knowledge alone puffs up. It makes you proud and arrogant. But then we come back again to the context of James' letter. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. You, you get deceived. You think you've, you've received something great. You think you're really moving along the process of sanctification and growth just because you heard when in actuality, if you're not doing, you've, you've made no progress. Right belief always leads to right actions. Always. Every single time it leads to right actions. And biblically speaking, it's not as though this is a hypothetical. Well, like, like God is saying, well, it would be really good if you could put this into practice. This is not a suggestion. It is assumed throughout the Scriptures that coming to a right Understanding a Holy Spirit illuminated understanding always leads to godly action, godly living, a holy lifestyle. If it does not, you've not understood it rightly. You've not believed rightly. That's where we would pray, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me to understand better. Help me to, uh, to, to grasp this more because obviously it's not producing as it should. Right belief always leads to right actions. In addition to that basic principle, the Bible also very clearly teaches that more responsibility comes to those who have more knowledge. In Luke chapter 12, after giving a parable with regard to the duty of being prepared for the return of the Lord and living in a manner proper to that end, Jesus says this, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. You see, in this story, both servants acted wrongly. They were both guilty of actions that deserved the beating. But the more severe beating was given to the servant who knew full well his master's will and he refused to do it. Because with competency comes liability, comes responsibility. Another example of this is found in John chapter 9. Jesus has healed a man who was born blind. And he did it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, of course, are, are upset. And they come to Jesus, and at the end of this pericope, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Of course, he's speaking spiritually now. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these words and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You see, the Pharisees claimed to have knowledge, and to an extent, they did have a far greater knowledge of the Scriptures than the common people, 
And therefore, their guilt remained on them. Had they actually been blind, had they actually been spiritually ignorant, they would not have been guilty of this particular sin. This doesn't mean sin in general, but this particular issue. With competency comes liability. And the last example of this is found in 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. You see, here Peter is describing people who have come into very close proximity with the people of God and the worship of God and a right understanding of the law of God and the righteousness expected by God and given freely in Christ. And yet even after all of that external knowledge, we would say after sitting through all of those worship services, they turn and they go back to their sinful ways. These people, Peter says, it would have been better for them had they never come into the church. They would remain in their ignorance and darkness. And it will be worse in the judgment for them than for those who have never heard the name of Christ. Because with more knowledge comes more responsibility. Now what is the source of this knowledge? Where do we receive this ability, the understanding, the competency to work out that which God works in, well, it's by the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. Again, why is it dangerous to be a part of a Bible-preaching church? It's because with understanding, with illumination, with competency comes great liability. You are responsible. You will be held liable for what you receive. We must come to terms with the great weight and responsibility that comes with understanding the right or good that we should do as well as having the ability to do it. And again from the text, who is the liable party? Whoever. The one knowing. Anyone who fits this description will be held liable for their level of competence in the right thing to do. So what will be the charge against this one knowing That's heading number two. The sin of indolence. The sin of indolence. Indolence is defined as the avoiding of activity. Avoiding exertion. Inaction. Inactivity. Idleness. Indolence is failure in doing. And so we come to the text... James again writes, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it. For him it is sin. Whoever fails to do it. You see, that's indolence. Failing to do. For him, the one who fails to do, it is sin. Now we might ask, is it here the right thing to do? Or is it the failure to do the right thing. Well, I think the answer to that's obvious. If that right thing, that good thing, is is intrinsically morally excellent all by itself, then it's not going to become sinful because someone didn't do it. The answer is the it here is the person's failure to do the thing. 
In other words, again, for any person, anywhere, at any time, who has a clear understanding of the right or good that they should do, for that person to avoid doing it, they are sinning in their inactivity. Or to put it more personally, you did not miss an opportunity. You did not pass up a blessing. You sinned in your idleness. Your failure to act was sin. Remaining inactive and doing nothing when you know you should do something is an offense against your God. The sin of indolence. Now generally when we think of sin, our minds immediately run to committing Sin, doing a sinful thing, engaging in a sinful behavior. But what Jesus or what James is teaching here is that we can sin, and in fact we do sin when we do nothing in situations where we should do something. Where we ought to act and we don't act, we sin. Now why is that? We've already seen from the context of James' letter. Throughout Scripture, true and right understanding of good and right, we would call that orthodoxy, right? Belief, always leads to good and right actions. We would call that orthopraxy, always. So we come to a passage like 2 Timothy 3.16, which we should all know very well, and verse 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what we learn here is that all Scripture, having been breathed out by God Himself, being God's own words, equip all of God's people, in context there it would be pastors, but equips all of God's people for every single good work. It is sufficient in and of itself to that end. Every good work. So that means that through studying and understanding God's Word, we will come to know the right thing that we should do. Knowledge of the right thing to do comes from Holy Spirit illumined Scripture. God's Word, in its totality, explains to us the right thing to do. But it's God's Word. It's not man's Word. It's not simply scholastic. It's not simply educational. It's divine. And since it is God-breathed, divine, it comes with the weight of imperative command. I said this last week. God's Word is law. God's Word commands action. God's Word requires obedience. You've probably heard that, that uh, the line where people have the bumper stickers that say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. When in actuality, it should just say, God said it, that settles it. It doesn't matter who believes it or who obeys. God's Word is law. And so when we study Scripture, we're not just receiving information. We are receiving divine mandate, whether it is instructions on how to live or doctrine on how to believe, we're receiving divine, <clears throat> divine mandate. So to come to an understanding of the truth and have the competence to act upon that truth necessitates that you practice what you've learned. That's why it's sin when you don't do it. You are, in essence, breaking God's law. 
Or we could also come at it from the practical outworking of the ordo salutis, the, the order of salvation. Remember that it is out of regeneration or the new birth that, we, that the Holy Spirit produces the ongoing work of sanctification. So that is to say if a man has, or woman has truly been born again of the Holy Spirit, then their lives will continually produce the fruit of putting to death the deeds of the flesh and producing deeds of righteousness. That's sanctification. Christianity, becoming a Christian, being saved, being born again, does not merely mean you stop doing this or that. It means you start doing this and that. You, you stop this stuff, but you take up all of this stuff. Christians do the good that they know to do. It's imperative. So that being said, we would have to agree that going against that principle... Refusing to do that which the Holy Spirit says do is sin. Matthew Henry calls this aggravated sin or sin with a witness because you know exactly what you should do. Your conscience bears witness within you and testifies you knew what you should have done and you didn't do it. It's sin with a witness. The person who would fail to act in this way says... Calvin knowingly and willingly takes pleasure in despising the Lord. He says they basic, basely and wickedly defraud their master of his right. Now why is that? It's because it is the prerogative of God to command us, to dictate us. And it is the prerogative of servants to obey, to listen, to follow. And so when we fail to act, our inaction is us acting as though God were not God. As if we were God and not servants. Another commentator says, Knowledge without practice is imputed to a man as great and presumptuous Sin, the sin of indolence, failing to act. So as we have been given this great deposit, this great stewardship of the Word of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand the Word, we are expected to act upon what we find. That's how we steward it well. To fail to act... To simply take in knowledge for the sake of knowledge, to become puffed up with theological jargon just for the sake of theological jargon, that's sin. That's sinful. It's not just that you should, you should try to do better. No, you're sinning when you do that. And if this is your practice, it would have been better for you had you never known the truth. There will be people, I'm convinced, to stand condemned in the judgment for their failure to put feet and legs on their so-called reformed theology while Christians from around the globe who had far fewer books, far fewer study tools, far fewer podcasts and sermons and blogs to learn from will receive rewards heaped upon rewards. Why? Because they acted on what they did know. They didn't know much. Maybe they were handicapped. Maybe they had a learning disability. They didn't know much, but they acted on what they knew and they will be rewarded while all of those who learned, became puffed up with their knowledge will be condemned. To whom much was given, of him much will be required. 
In the last place, then, I want to address the objection of ignorance. The objection of ignorance. You see this, this passage of Scripture and the, the implications immediately, I believe, it did for me, in our carnal minds, spark this objection in order to avoid being held liable for our knowledge. You could probably all say it. Here's the objection stated. This is here, I'm speaking from the perspective of the objector. If, through the study of God's Word, I will become competent in the area of right things and will be equipped for every such good work, and thus will become liable to judgment and held, for, or held responsible for my knowledge, then I will not study so deeply into God's Word as to become enlightened to the right things to do. In other words, if much is required of those to whom much is given, I'll remain in ignorance. I'll just know enough to get me by. I'll learn enough doctrine, enough theology to get me into the gates of heaven and no more. And that way, I won't be held responsible for all of that extra stuff. Well, I want to answer that objection with two things. First of all, the, the character of Christian faith. If that's the way you would think, I would say first, the Christian person we learn in Matthew 5.3 is said to be poor in spirit. That means as Christians, we come as beggars to Christ. Beggars don't come groveling at the source of all sustenance to simply refuse that which is given to them. No, we come having nothing and receiving everything. Matthew 5.4, the Christian person is one who mourns. Christians are broken over their sinful condition. <clears throat> and so, one who is broken does not come to the source of all restoration simply to refuse that which will restore them. A Christian person is described as a sheep in the pasture of the Good Shepherd. A sheep does not follow his shepherd into the green pastures simply to refuse the green grass to which he's being led. You see, it's completely outside of the realm of Christian character and faith to suppose that you might avoid spiritual provision, spiritual restoration, spiritual nourishment simply because you're going to be held accountable for your stewardship of those things. That's not how Christians think. That's almost akin to beggars can't be choosers. If that's your attitude, your biggest worry is not that you are going to be held liable for what you know. Your biggest worry should be that you are estranged from a holy and righteous God. You've, you've not come as a beggar. You've come arrogant. You've not come broken over your sin. You've not come as a sheep to be followed. Or as Jesus would say, you are not of my sheep. So the Christian character, the character of our faith, simply denies that it would be a possibility that we would say, well, I'll just stay ignorant. Secondly, I guess this would be an argument from philosophy. The objector again says, I'm going to avoid the knowledge of the right thing to do so that I won't be held accountable for the right thing to do. Well, why would you avoid the knowledge of that which is good and right except that you knew that it was good and right? And to know that spiritual understanding is good and right is to acknowledge that you ought to pursue that knowledge. The pursuit of this knowledge then, by your own admission, is the right thing to do. Therefore, to know the right thing to do, in this case, 
The diligent study of God's Word in order to understand right things and fail to do it is sin. So you see, failure to act in this area, pursuing the knowledge, is knowing to do the right thing and failing to do it. You are guilty of the very sin you have sought to avoid. So, that's the argument from philosophy. In other words, a Christian person will not come and say, well, I just won't learn. I won't come to this understanding. I won't seek this knowledge if I'm going to be held responsible for it. No, Christians come and they say, I'll take it all. I'll take all that I can get. I will diligently learn and study and at the same time pray, God, please help me to steward it well. Help me to live out what I'm learning. The objection that one might remain in ignorance in order to avoid being held accountable for knowledge either proves you're not a Christian or you are guilty of the very sin of indolence. So as we sort of turn our attention to the Lord's table, we're reminded, not only last week, not only is breaking God's law sin, but our failure to act in situations where we know the right thing to do is sin. Where God has clearly spoken and commanded obedience, idleness is sin. When God commands action, inactivity, inaction is sin. And so we, we compound sin upon sin. Every infraction against God's law stands against us. Every time we know to do right and we choose to do nothing, it stands against us. Sin upon sin, day after day, moment by moment, trampling underfoot the commands of God. Well, what shall we say to these things? Well, in Isaiah chapter 52, we meet someone. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. A servant. What does a servant do? Again, it's the prerogative of a servant to receive orders and obey. A servant obeys. And then Isaiah chapter 53, we read, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So through the work of this servant, many will be counted righteous. Their iniquities need to be carried on his shoulders. Therefore, we know that the, this many, they are not righteous. And then in John's Gospel, Jesus describes His own perspective of His ministry. He says in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In other words, Jesus says, I've come as a servant. I've come to receive orders and obey. In John 10.17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So you see, the culmination of the orders given to Christ is the laying down of His life in death and the taking up of His life in resurrection. The servant of Isaiah comes to die and to be raised. Now what does that 
obedience of Christ to the command of His Father do for us? Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, His obedience to His Father is the righteousness given to us who are marked with iniquity. And what's the essence of His obedience again? Philippians chapter 2, 7-8, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of this truth, John Murray writes, quote, It was that obedience brought to its consummate fruition on the cross that constituted Him an all-sufficient and perfect Savior. It was by obedience, he says, He secured our salvation because it was by obedience He wrought the work that secured it. His obedience takes the place of our disobedience. So have you found yourself last week or today, have you found yourself to be disobedient? Have you found yourself to be a sinner? Then run to the one who is perfectly obedient. Run to Christ, who is no sinner, but who became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, the the totality of the work of Christ is summed up in obedience. The totality of our sinfulness could be summed up in disobedience. We need the obedient one and His righteousness in our stead. So as the elements for the Lord's Supper are distributed, examine yourself and see if this obedience has been given to you by faith.